Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. My name is Stephen. I am the lead pastor at City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills. I am here filling in for Aaron today. So if you're a guest, uh, I am not the uh, the lead pastor here. I am just, uh, I get the joy and the honor of preaching God's word to you. Um, if you're not familiar, City on a Hill is a network of neighborhood churches, meaning each church is autonomous. Each church has its own local leadership, uh, but we're con- committed to a, the same common goal. We share a name, we share the same values, uh, but we're contextualizing the gospel to our particular neighborhood. Uh, Brighton is very different than Jamaica Plain. Uh, It's very different than where we're at, but uh, we're thankful for you guys and what you're doing here around college campuses uh, and uh, for your prayers and your support as we reach our part of the city, which is a very very diverse, growing uh, part of our city, lots of young professionals. And God has been very gracious to us as we have uh, been planting that church there. Um, God is doing really good things. Um, Just in the past couple months, we've seen some new folks come along into the life of our body. Um, Lots of of life, lots of unbelievers who are connected to uh, our congregation. And um, also just our our church is really serving and caring for one another. Um, In the last two weeks, we've had two babies born and a woman have a pulmonary embolism. Uh, And so we have all sorts of care needs going on in the life of our body. Uh, But God has been very kind to us to see our people step up and step into that. And some of you, um, I know, have even stepped into some of those needs. And Matt and Jordan have done that. And so thankful for you guys and your partnership in the gospel. As I mentioned, Aaron and Emily are out of town. So we wish them safe travels as they head back. And so I get the joy of being with you today. Um, Just last week, um, I was actually out of town. One of our elders was able to step in and teach for me. Uh, And uh, I was down in Alabama. And I don't know how much you know about Alabama, but people talk a little different down there. Um, I was down there uh, spending some time with one of our mission partners as a church plant. We have churches that support us financially and send teams much like you guys. And uh, I was struck at how people talk differently. I don't know how many of you are from the South, uh, but we cannot... uh, tell someone a criticism directly. Um, we have to kind of put it inside of a compliment sandwich, right? So there's a compliment, the criticism, and then another compliment, right? It's like, I just think you're such a great person, but I don't like your hair, but I don't want you to like, but I just really love you. You're so kind. Like we, we try to find a way to say that compliment in uh, the, the nice or the, co- the conflict or whatever in the nicest way possible. In New England, we just say it. We just, we're just like, this is what it is. I don't like you. It's your face. And we say, we say what's up. Um, and I, I've seen this in, even in the way that we tell stories. Some people, we, are, we, we, we tell stories like this. It, it, it's facts. It's like, we got to tell stories, you know, this is it. This is what happened. This is where it happened. This is when it happened. We're done. Uh, there's, there's a premium on words. We don't want to waste our energy. Other people, we get distracted along the way where you start telling the story, the story. It's like squirrel. And like, we get completely distracted. The apostle Paul is a little bit like that latter person. Paul will often go one direction and then radically shift gears and take a detour for like 12 verses. And so if you're a grammar nerd, this passage is gonna mess you up because it's 12 straight verses of Paul just saying stuff. There's no period. He just, one big long run on sentence. And Paul in chapter three, it started one direction and shifts to a completely different direction. In verse one, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, he says that, and then he stops. 
Now, the words for this reason are looking back towards what Paul was saying in chapter two. As we've talked about the last several weeks, we're going through the same uh, passages that you guys are in in Ephesians. Uh, In chapter two, he talked about how the gospel had opened up uh, uh, a relationship with God to a whole new group of people. He said that before we knew Christ, we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We were not um, sick in our sins and trespasses. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were so dead that we needed a savior to come and make us alive. In verses eight through 10, we see that it's not our moralism that gets us to God, but it's Christ's work on our behalf. So you cannot be good enough to get yourself to God, but through the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, by placing your faith in him, by his grace alone, you can be saved. And then the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the people that God is calling together. In verses 11 through 22 of chapter two, we see how God has called both Jew and Gentile together and to be one new family in Christ Jesus. And so for this reason, Paul is saying, for this reason, and, and he starts to launch into this beautiful prayer. And he actually picks up the prayer in verse 14 through 21. And you guys will cover that next week. But we see in chapter three, we see this giant, this shift from this vision of the type of church that Paul wants the Ephesians to be. He goes from what they would be to how they are going to get there. And he starts with prayer, which I think is a good place to start. But we see that something stops Paul. He's about to start praying, but then he has this other thought enter his head and he says, I've got to say this. In fact, in your Bible, you might actually notice a very a long dash at the end of verse one. Does anybody else see that? There's a long dash. That wouldn't be in the original Greek, but that's for us in English to understand that Paul was going one way and shifting to a different one. And I love this aside that Paul's about to get into because it shows us the humanity of the Bible. Paul was a human just like us. He had thoughts just like us. And while the Bible is authoritative and it is without error and it is God who wrote it through Paul, he didn't do so at the expense of Paul's personality. Paul was a very verbose person. Paul was a rambler. He was kind of wordy and it comes through in his writing and there's something that Paul had to say. Some scholars have said that verses uh, 2 through 13 are Paul attesting his authority. You'll see this sometimes in, in Paul's writings when he's writing to a church. He'll say that he's an apostle of Jesus and he'll remind people of who he is, kind of like put some respect on my name. He wants them to know that what he says has weight. But that's not what Paul's doing with the Ephesians. Notice nowhere in the letter does Paul have to assert his authority, but he's actually being pastoral. He's being pastoral in this moment because what is he doing? He's actually anticipating an objection that he can see stirring in the minds of the Ephesians. He's writing these words, understanding what the Ephesians might be thinking at this point. That Paul has laid out this very beautiful and verbose vision of what a church can be. How incredible would it be that if we as a church were to look and say, we truly believe we are redeemed. We truly believe we've been adopted by God's grace, that we have an inheritance, that it's the power of God which has built this church, that we were once dead, but now we're made alive, that we've been saved through grace alone and that God can unite people from all sorts of backgrounds and tribes and tongues and nations to be this new family. But he can see the objections because Paul is writing this, not from a palace, but from a prison cell. He's sitting in a Roman jail. He's not sitting in a position of victory. And you can almost imagine the Ephesians going, Paul, you preaching this gospel got you thrown in jail. You're in prison. What hope do we have in order to live the life that you're calling us to live? And he wants them to see that true victory does not look like an easy life, but it looks like a God-centered life. 
God did not promise us as followers of Jesus an easy life. He promised us a life that would be marked by trials. He promised us a life that would be marked by suffering. But always, since the beginning of time, we have believed that an easy life equals a blessed life. The ancient people who this would have been written to would have marked God's happiness or the God's happiness with them based on how their crops were doing. If their crops were flourishing, the gods were blessing them. If they had healthy children, the gods were blessing them. But once those things began to fall apart, they began to question whether they were in the favor of the gods. And you and I do exactly the same thing. We believe that if our life is free of drama, if our life is free of stress, if our life is free of problems, if our life goes according to our five-year plan, some of you may not even be thinking five minutes ahead, but it goes according to the plan we imagine for ourselves, then God must love us. But the second that that falls apart, we begin to doubt God's goodness. Paul so badly wanted them to understand their new identity as the church so that that they could face the trials that they were going to face with joy. And this is good news for us, not just personally, but as a church. I know City on the Hill Brighton is a a very new church, much like Forest Hills. And we face a lot of the same hardships and heartaches and sacrifices. Planting a church is hard. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. If you're not saying amen, you're a new visitor this morning, you're not getting it, um, or this evening. Um, planning a church is tough. It's tough. It's hard work. There's not built-in community. It's something you have to form over time. And what often happens is if you're stepping into an established church, you're stepping into something that somebody else sacrificed for. We are enjoying the fruits of someone else's hard work. We think about what is the joy that is set ahead of us, not just for us, but for others who don't yet know Jesus. We often forget that that's what God has called us to and that being the church is hard. And what Paul is doing for us is he's giving us an encouragement in these verses to keep pressing ahead, to keep going and looking to what Jesus has set out in front of us. So a couple of ways that Paul wants to encourage us and I want to encourage you this evening. Firstly, be encouraged because your calling is worth it. What God is calling us to as his people, as his church is worth it. Paul in this passage is encouraging them based upon his own calling. He's reminding them of how he was called. In verse two, it says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. The word assuming kind of sounds like if you've heard this, but really think of this more of as on the basis of, on the basis of the fact that you have heard my story, you know how I've been called. Be encouraged, not simply because I've preached the gospel to you, but because it's me who's doing it. Because they had heard it from Paul. If you're, if you're a Christian, I could, I'd imagine there are probably one or two people that you could pinpoint who had a massive impact on your faith. There's one or two people that you could look to, someone who discipled you, someone whose teaching that you sat under, someone whose example that you watched and you looked at them and said, if that's what it looks like to follow Jesus, I wanna do that too. Most of us who follow Jesus can say that, but it's even clearer here in Ephesians 3 that what Paul is saying is that the messenger in this case matters just as much as the message itself because Paul's calling was unique. In verse two, we see he talks about the stewardship of God's grace that was given to him. This stewardship that Paul was given was this special calling to go and to share the gospel, to tell people about Jesus who were not Jewish, to take the gospel to the Gentile world. And so Paul had been given this gospel, this message to steward. And a steward was someone who would take an investment and they would improve upon it. 
He was to take this opportunity to steward the gospel and to go forward. And he says that he does so for you, for them, more than just uh, telling them about how to have a personal relationship with God. But as verse three tells us that there is this mystery of the gospel that is being revealed through the life and ministry of Paul. And he says a little bit further in verse three, he says, uh, he says, as I have written briefly, what Paul has written in chapter two is telling us about the mystery that God's salvation was not just for the Jewish people, but for Gentiles as well. God is calling people to himself, Jew and Gentile into one new family. And he says in verse four, he says, when you have read this, in fact, when you've read this letter and you hear this good news, he's saying, I'm inviting you in this way to this glimpse of the vision that God has given me. I want you to grasp just how beautiful and just how true and just how good this gospel is. This is something that Paul has seen. This is something that Paul has experienced and he wants them to enter into the same joy that he has seen. I feel like because we've been in this world where we've been sitting home for the last year and a half, that half my conversations are trying to convince people to watch the shows I like on Netflix. Anybody else feel that? We're like, have you seen Ted Lasso? It's so good. You got to ignore the language, but it's so good. Um, we, we talk about these different shows that we've seen. We talk about, uh, maybe you're not a, a Netflix person, but it's, it's music. You hear a new band, you go to a new restaurant and we tell other people, man, I, I, you got to do this. You got to watch this. You got to listen to it. You got to go eat there. Why? Because we want them to experience what we felt when we watched it. We want them to be moved in the same way we were the first time we heard the guitar solo. We want them to taste and see just how good that chicken was. We want them to experience what we've experienced. And what we see throughout the Bible is a God who is pursuing us and these biblical writers and these biblical prophets who've seen and tasted that the Lord is good and they're wanting others to do the same. Psalm 34, David writes, "'O taste and see that the Lord is good. "'Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him.'" How does David know that they would taste and see that the Lord is good? Because David had tasted and seen that the Lord was good. How did David know that they would would be blessed if they took refuge in God? It's because David knew what it was like to be someone on the run and find refuge in God. He wanted them to know this. Paul wanted the Ephesians to know this. And we see the uniqueness of of Paul's calling and the fact that this was something revealed to Paul. In verse three, it said it was revealed to him by revelation. In verse five, it says, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. In other words, this was not made known that the Gentiles would be saved and have the same access as the Jews in this particular way. It wasn't that the Gentiles could not be saved. It wasn't that they couldn't have a relationship with God. But the scope of that salvation and the extent and how that would happen was a mystery. The way it happened in the Old Testament was that Gentiles or non-Jews could be saved by becoming Jewish. They could attach themselves to the nation of Israel. We see this with people like Ruth, Rahab. And in fact, in uh, Genesis chapter 12, when God talks of his intention of making a people who would bless all nations, he says to Abraham, this people will be a blessing to everyone. First Kings chapter eight in verses 41 through 43, it says, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. 
in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and hear and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. The command to bring every tribe, every tongue, every nation to God was not a mystery. But the extent and how that would fully happen was. And there's all sorts of ways we kind of can concoct to imagine uniting people across different things, whether it's education, whether it's politics. We have all these ideas of how we're going to unite people. And even the Jewish people had this idea that if the Gentiles would just become like Jews, then they would they'd figure it out. They could be in, in the inner circle. So if the Gentiles would just take on our customs and they would follow all of our rules, then they can really be in with God. But they failed to realize that God was not after their, their circumstances, not after the rule following, but he was after their heart. And today we do the exact same thing because many of us, we imagine if I can just come to church on a Sunday and I can do churchy things, and I can follow all the right rules, and I can have a relationship with God. But we understand that it's not what we do for God, but what God has done for us. And that's why in verse 5, he says that though this was not something that was made known to other generations, it has been made known and revealed to his holy prophets and the prophets, uh, his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. The Spirit revealed and used the apostles who were set aside by God, those who wrote the New Testament. You guys are going to get into apostles and prophets in a couple of weeks. Um, this picture of how people could be invited in without having to follow the law. And in verse six, we see that God would make a way for anyone who would come to him that they could be saved. They could be fully known. They could truly give their lives to God. And we see in verse six, what happens? It says, the mystery is that the Gentiles are what? They're fellow heirs, they're members of the same body, and they're partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That in Christ Jesus, you are a fellow heir means that you have all the same rights as the Jewish people. In fact, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 14, it says that we were made one and that the, that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. In other words, the law, which stood as a barrier for Gentiles to enter, has been broken down. You're now fellow heirs. You get all the same stuff. We're part of the same body. We have a new humanity. We're one new pe people. We're partakers of the same blessings of being part of the same family. And that this doesn't come through believing the law. That a relationship with God doesn't come through a, a better set of morals. It doesn't come through taking on a new cultural identity, but it comes simply through faith in Jesus Christ. It comes in Christ Jesus through the gospel, the good news that anyone who will come to God, who will humble themselves and give, them li give themselves to Jesus, he will receive. Anyone who's willing to get in on this life. And Paul is telling them this. He's taking the time to tell them this, to say, that for you to believe this, everything that I've suffered is worth it. For you guys to be brought in on this good news, it is worthy, is worth suffering. It's worth every bad thing that I've ever faced for you to get this and for me to get this, and I am willing to suffer for it. Notice Paul sitting in prison, and he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Rome or I'm a prisoner of Caesar. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. 
He understood that God's suffering would lead to, or his suffering would lead to joy in God. Romans chapter five says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Often when we feel discouraged, when suffering comes into our lives, it actually reveals where our greatest hope is. When our, our, our faith is shaken in God, what it can actually reveal is that God has become a means to an end. And we find that our greatest hope and our greatest longing and the greatest good we can imagine is really not God himself, but it's our safety. It's our security. When that relationship falters, we wonder why God has left us. And it reveals the fact that that suffering is revealing the fact that our greatest hope is in him. But what Paul is saying is that suffering puts all this, everything in our lives in perspective. God never promised an easy life. He never promised a carefree life. In fact, in 2 Timothy, to Timothy, the pastor of the Ephesian church, he said, expect suffering. You are going to suffer for Jesus' name. But what suffering does is it forms us to be like Christ because we have a God who suffered for us. And as we suffer, we have a God who suffers with us. And we realize that as he suffers with us, our greatest joy is fellowship with God himself. And what that means is that we can suffer the greatest losses in life. It means that if for the the sake of Jesus, you miss out on a promotion or you miss out on an opportunity or your reputation with others gets sullied, it's okay because you have Jesus because it's worth it. It's what leads Paul in verse 13 to say, look, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. This is for you. It's worth it. Every sacrifice I have to make is worth it. I said earlier, being part of a church plant is hard work. It's not easy. There's lots of setup and tech stuff goes wrong and, and, and you know, things happen. It takes time. But let me ask you this. Is every sacrifice we have to make as the church worth it so that someone else can find joy in God? What if the sacrifices we're making now are for future hope for others that they would meet Jesus? Because often when it comes to church on a Sunday, we come thinking, what am I going to receive? What am I going to get out of this? How am I going to grow spiritually? But what if what God is doing in you right now is meant to grow you through the hard work of helping others meet Jesus? This is a call not just for Paul, but for us. And the second encouragement we see this this evening, I'm having a hard time with this morning and this evening, I apologize. Uh, Be encouraged as you live out your calling. Paul wants us to be encouraged as we live out our calling. Paul in verse seven says, of this gospel, I was made a minister. Paul understood that the mystery and the proclamation of that mystery were intrinsically linked. You could not separate them. This was such good news that it had to be told. And you need to understand that Paul was the least likely candidate to be the one to share this news. This guy had a past. He had a record. He, it'd be like he's applying for a job as a felon. You're not imagining this guy getting the job. He is a, was a violent persecutor of the church who hunted down Christians for believing in Jesus. And I am not saying this for shock value, but this would be the equivalent of a white supremacist becoming an advocate for racial justice. This would be the equivalent of a terrorist going and advocating for the proper treatment of those whom he once terrorized. 
Paul's life was marked by the radical grace of God to change him because God reached down and ripped this man out of his sin. God reached down and took this man out of his hatred. He reached down and took a man out of his prejudice and radically changed him. How? According to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of this power. See, every Christian should proclaim the gospel because every Christian has received the gospel. We should proclaim the good news because the good news has happened to us that we were once sinners and Jesus saved us. We were once dead and now we've been made alive in Christ. And Paul understood this because in verse eight, he says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. This isn't false humility. Paul's not going, you know, Paul's not saying, you know, I I made some bad decisions. You know, I'm I'm generally a pretty good guy. I just need a little help to get myself over the edge. I'm deciding to settle down and, and make better decisions. Paul's saying, I'm a sinner, I'm the worst. I'm hopeless. I I was so undeserving of this. That God would not only save Paul, but then use Paul and entrust him with the message of taking the gospel to the Gentiles was astonishing. And it was so astonishing to him that he preached this astonishing grace that he had received. And he was compelled to preach this grace that he had found as the unsearchable riches of Christ. The word unsearchable has two senses. The first sense is that it's beyond human comprehension. At one point, Paul found this gospel unbelievable. He found it unfathomable. He, he just could not believe it. I've been sharing the gospel with some, some unbelievers who've been visiting our church recently. And as I talk about how we've been saved through Jesus alone, through, through the cross alone, through, through all of that, they often look at me and say, I just can't believe that. I can't believe that God would send people to hell simply because they don't trust in Jesus. I I can't believe that there are good people out there who are gonna spend eternity separated from God. And in fact, Paul would be much like that at one point, believing that believing in Jesus was repugnant. But on the Damascus road, we see that Paul's eyes were opened. That he saw what he could not see by reasoning his way there, not by answering all of his objections, but by God opening his eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is why it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we, our eyes are open to see the face of Jesus Christ, we are able to believe the unbelievable. And maybe that's you today. You are just struggling with believing this. You're you're skeptical, you're curious, and you just don't know that you can believe it. I pray that the Spirit would open your eyes to believe, to see God's great love for you. The second sense of the unsearchable riches of Christ is that they were beyond description. They're so beautiful that he, he couldn't, just couldn't put them into words. My wife and I got to go up to Maine a couple of weeks ago and we're uh, actually staying in this hotel out on the coast, right on the, on the rocks. And, and I'm really jealous of some of you and your ability to, I feel, follow a few of you on, on, on Instagram. I, I'm terrible at taking pictures. I just pick the camera up and do this. Some of you understand the rule of thirds. You understand lighting, you understand all that stuff. Uh, but I took a pretty good picture. I was pretty excited about this. And, and it was such a beautiful scene to see this nor'easter 
that had, had, was rolling onto the coast of Maine. And I wish I could have time to describe every droplet of water and the, and the waves that were crashing up and thundering onto the rocks and, and the rocks and the fauna and, the, and how gray and beautiful the sky was. I could probably sit up here all day and describe all of that. But ultimately, my hope would be that you would go and look for it yourself, that you would be so compelled by the beauty of what I described that you go, you know what? I want to go check that out. Sounds, that sounds like a great place to go vacation. See, Paul found the gospel to be unsearchable riches that he had to describe the beauty of, and he wanted others to be so compelled that they wanted it to. He wanted them to experience what he'd experienced. He, he wanted them to lay hold of what he believed in. And this is why in verse nine, he says, and to bring light to light for everyone. What is the plan of mystery hidden for ages and God who created all things. Paul wanted everyone possible to know the good news of what Jesus had done. See, something happens when you see your own need for Jesus and you understand what he's done for you. And you also understand that others don't have that. You go. John Stott said, once we are sure that the gospel was both true from God and riches for mankind, nobody will be able to silence us. We share the good news that we've received. Uh, you know, just, uh, just this past week, I was able to spend some time with some international missionaries. And uh, one of the things that compels me ab- about Christianity and why I actually believe it's true is that Christianity is not something that has been locked regionally. It's not something that stayed in one region of the world and never spread out. It's not something that's culturally bound, uh, but Christianity has moved and actually transcends cultures. At one point, the center of Christianity was the Middle East. At another point, it was Africa, Europe, America. But now we're starting to see the center of Christianity and the movement of Christianity actually move towards other places, towards Africa, back toward Africa and towards Asia. And I was spending time with these missionaries and we were talking about the missions movement that's really happened over the last couple hundred years and has really sped up in the last hundred years and all the energy that's been given towards missions. And I was just talking with these missionaries um, who were from the International Mission Board. And this is just a very small piece of God's kingdom. We know there's more happening beyond this, but just through the work of the International Mission Board, right now there are over 3,600 missionaries on the field right now serving 247 urban centers. In the last year, there were over 144,000 new believers, Almost 21,000 pastors trained. Over 51,000 men and women receiving advanced theological training. Over 18,000 new churches formed. Um, over almost 12,000 people groups globally reached. And here's what actually blew my mind is that right now there are 3,105 unengaged, unreached people groups, mostly around uh, place, in places like Asia, South America, and Africa. Over 3,100 groups of people who have no access to the gospel. And right now there are missionaries beating down the door to get into those places. But here's what's beautiful about this is that those who've heard the gospel end up going and telling the gospel. And over the last hundred years, there have been so much effort given in in places in the 1040 window and in the global South, particularly China. And China has the fastest growing church in the world. And you know what's starting to happen from China as Christianity seems to be waning in the West? The gospel's coming back. Chinese missionaries are going to places like Pakistan that they have an open door to and don't even have to even have to have a passport to go into. They're going into the Middle East. They're going into Europe. They're even coming into America. In fact, there are Anglican missionaries right now who are leaving Africa, coming and planting churches in the United States. 
Because when we've heard the gospel, we go and tell the gospel and we understand that God's plan has always been the church. God's plan was not to have superstars like Paul, but to equip ordinary people with incredible news to go and tell the gospel. And this is why we see in verse 10, it says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church has always been the end game. This was according to the eternal purposes that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. To extend the manifold wisdom and make it known, that word manifold is the variety of wisdom. And actually the picture there is the multicolored wisdom of God, like a kaleidoscope, like a, like a tapestry of God's grace as of a people from every tribe, every tongue and every nation showing that God is powerful enough to do what only he can do by calling this people together with this good news. And I want you to notice who is hearing this good news, who's actually seeing this. The world sees it, but it also says um, the, the authorities, the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This is the spiritual realm. There are angels who for eternity have been looking and longing to see how God would bring this to fruition and are cheering because God is glorifying himself through the church. But also the demonic, Satan and his demons are having to sit like they're on the other side of a football blowout as we continue to run the score up because they cannot stop the advance of the gospel through the local church. As we close, I want us to be encouraged in a couple of ways. And there's a couple of ways that we can, we can live into this identity as the church. The first is celebrate God's grace with people who are different than you. When we think about what God is doing in his church, he's pulled people together with varying personalities He's pulled people together with, from varying backgrounds, from varying ethnicities, occupations to celebrate the grace of God together, to look towards Jesus together. And one of the most countercultural things we can do is do that with people who shouldn't be family, who've now become family. Secondly, we display the gospel through a changed life. In verse 12, it says, in, in whom we have confidence and access with, uh, sorry, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, we get to approach God. And as we approach God in repentance and belief, he begins to shape us and change us into who he wants us to be. And lastly, that we would declare the gospel to those who don't know yet. Who in your life right now doesn't know Jesus? Who in your life right now is far from God that you may have the opportunity to share the life-giving message of the cross? What's your next step? Is it maybe for you this morning or this evening, it's giving your life to Jesus? Maybe today is the day that you place your faith in Christ to save you and you surrender your life to him. Maybe it's taking the next step of committing to being a part of the local church, getting in on that membership class. But whatever it is, we get to live this out together to the glory of God for our common joy and for this good news to go to the end of the world. Let's pray.